Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. On this episode, we are continuing our brand new series on the genealogies of Scripture. And here, Alistair Roberts and James Bajan are going to discuss Genesis chapters 4 and 5, specifically the line of Cain and Adam's descendants going up to Noah. Before we jump in, be sure to check out those show notes and follow us online. We'd love for you also to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where we release weekly videos on Bible liturgy and culture. Right now, we are in the middle of a video series on liturgy and our labor. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this episode. And here are Alistair Roberts and James Bajon discussing the genealogies in Genesis chapters 4 and 5. Today we're discussing Genesis chapter 4 and 5, continuing our series on the genealogies of Scripture. As you look through Genesis 4 and 5, you can maybe recognize some of the parallels between the two genealogies that we encounter there. First of all, the genealogy of Cain, and followed by the genealogy that leads to Noah. Reading through these genealogies, we may also recognize certain patterns and significant details, contrasts between them. For instance, the genealogy that leads to Noah, the genealogy of Seth, is one that has the ages of the different figures who are involved. There are names that are similar as we read through. And so I believe that these things will reward close attention as we reflect upon these details in some of the most neglected parts of Scripture, at least for modern Christians, there are ways in which we can have a deeper insight into God's purpose and plan within the story more generally. Often the genealogical elements are neglected precisely because it's strange to us. So hopefully by the end of this discussion, these passages will be less forbidding and um, unfamiliar And we will begin to recognise some of the threads that connect them with the narratives and some of the details that give us purchase upon their message. I'm joined today by James Bajan from the UK. I'm currently in Birmingham. And I would like to ask James, what are some of the things that can help us in just recognising the structure of these genealogies, the overarching patterns that they might share, and then some of the clues and keys that we might find helpful as we begin to try and interpret them. I guess there are quite a few structural parallels between the two. So, for instance, Cain's genealogy, um, the seventh, there is Lamech, who is associated with the number seven. He is going to be avenged 77 times. We also find uh, a Lamech in the other branch, which leads down to Noah. And he is said to live for 777 years. And so there is this um, sense in which both seem to be unfolding at once and coming to a head at the same kind of time. One of the things I've found uh, interesting and slightly counterintuitive about the lines is that Cain's line seems to want to uh, make a take a grasp of history to establish cities and ways of interacting with the environment, ways of developing, um, holding livestock, and so forth. And yet, 
that line is ultimately a dead end. It's it's lost in the flood. By contrast, the Genesis 5 line is, we have this repeat, and he died. It's stricken by death. Um, Enoch is taken, and we don't get hardly any details about the people. And yet, that is the line which continues and which goes through and survives the flood and is is preserved um, in the ongoing story of Genesis. That is a good point. I think the other thing that I've noticed about the line of Cain is the way in which the relationship between Cain and Abel almost seems to be represented within the descendants of um, Lamech. So he has one line, um, Jabel and Jubal, which might remind us, even in their very names, the sound of their names, of Abel. Jabel is associated with those who dwell in tents and have livestock, a keeper of livestock, as Abel was a keeper of sheep. And then Tubal Cain is associated with forging instruments of bronze and iron, a man of the earth, like we might think of Cain, his ancestor. And so that pattern and contrast between two sides of a family is played out a few generations down the line from Cain and Abel as well. With respect to the timing and some of the ages, there are various things, obviously, which could be said. One that occurs to me is how many of the ages in the Genesis 5 genealogy, well, all of them, in fact, with the exception of Methuselah, are multiples of five or kind of two years between two multiples of five. So we have numbers ending in a zero or a five, or we have numbers ending in a two or or a seven, which I guess is meant to signify kind of midway between those round numbers. And Methuselah then is unusual. 969 stands out. It also stands out insofar as it's the oldest. And if you add up the numbers that lead to Methuselah. He is um, 187 years, for instance, older than um, Lamech. And, and you can sort of do the math and, and work out that he his life comes to an end at the time of the flood. I'm not 100% sure what the significance of, of that is. Um, but Noah, when he has sons, there's also a big delay there. It, it seems that he has uh, his firstborn son at, at the age of 500. Is, is there a sense of um, a, a kind of delay here? Is this where Peter gets his idea, for instance, that uh, God was waiting patiently while Noah built the ark? Perhaps. Um, certainly interesting that the number of years before he fathered Shem, Ham and Japheth is 500. Those round centuries are found at various points within the narrative. So Adam lives 800 years after fathering Seth. Um, similarly, um, you have, let's see, there's another person who lives 800 years after father. Jared li- lives 800 years after fathering Enoch. Enoch lives 300 years after fathering Methuselah. And then the year of the flood is the 600th year of Noah's life. So these round centuries are also important. Carol Hill has remarked upon the preferred numbers that we see within the uh, accounts of the ages of the patriarchs. And others have suggested that maybe they're connected with 
the um, chief planets and their synodical orbits, we can immediately notice something in the number 365. That's a familiar number associated with the Earth and the year. And I wonder whether we're supposed to see larger cycles playing out here that help us to connect these characters with broader cosmic themes, um, that these characters are not just um, individuals in a line, but they're representing a larger story that's playing out. Um, they're pointing us towards some cosmic pattern that is involved. In terms of the actual history of some of these passages, I've often, I suppose, in my mind's eye thought of a massive, largely uninhabited Earth and just these characters w walking around largely on their own, which I guess is almost certainly not the way we're meant to think of it. People who lived to ages like these could have had huge numbers of descendants and each of those descendants could have gone on to have huge numbers of descendants. I'm assuming that the line, at least in Genesis 5, is a line of the firstborn. Maybe then these people are best seen as um, large, the leaders of large clans and as very important and influential figures in history who would have been in, in charge of large groups and whose lives would have influenced whole people groups and whole populations. It's certainly important that we're told uh, it's a series of names, one name in each generation until we arrive at Shem, Ham and Japheth. That line does include occasional statements that these people had other sons and daughters. But as you say, there are particular figures that are picked out from the rest. At the beginning of chapter 6, we're told that man began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them. Now, chapter 5 is all about sons, um, a series of sons that descend one generation after another. And it's presenting a generational succession rather than a multiplication and expansion throughout a series of years, which you would tend to think of if you just think about in terms of the size of particular population, that's maybe the first thing that we would notice, that the human race is multiplying, its numbers are growing and they're spreading throughout these different areas and they're developing cities. We already see cities fairly early on in the story of Cain. So that might be the way that we would choose to tell the story. But the fact that we're told a generational succession, a series of sons, and just the firstborn sons perhaps, as you suggest, maybe invites us to think more deeply about why it is told that way because it could as you've noted been told have been told very differently in terms of some of the numbers of individuals i think i'm right in saying that it's it's 10 generations down to noah and it's also going to be 10 climaxing in abraham later on i guess Probably different arrangements could have been given so that the numbers came out differently, but there seems to be some deliberate patterning. It it may also be significant that a, a lot of um, generations or families which end up going their separate ways seem to split into three 
kind of headwaters. The line of Cain ends in three different fathers, the fathers of different professions and people groups. Noah, after the flood in particular, divides into Shem, Ham and Japheth. We have Abraham's folk splitting into uh, Abraham, uh, Haran, and, and um, is it Terah? Um, and and so, sorry, yes. Uh, and so I wonder if there's a, a significant to that sort of division into three as people go their separate ways. And also you mentioned 10. If we look back in Genesis chapter 1, we have the generations of the heavens and the earth, and there there are 10 words that end in rest. And here we have, as it were, 10 generations, and there's the same sort of rhythm to it that we see within God's creation in Genesis chapter 1. And it ends with Noah, who's going to give rest and relief. And so I suspect we're supposed to see, again, some cosmic um, pattern or connection with the earlier narrative of creation here. Do you see the line of Cain as um, a line which God specifically wants to draw a, a line under, as it were? It, it seems slightly unusual in that some of the some of its innovations, um, the livestock, the bronze and iron, and so forth, they they continue. They will emerge later in the text and story of scripture and yet Cain as, as such sort of comes to an end how do you see that yes it is a, an interesting detail although you do see a sort of um, mirroring of the two genealogies which we might get to in a moment throughout the story of scripture God's people don't seem to be the technological innovators the powerful empires these sorts of things it will be people like um, the people of Cain's line, Nimrod and other people like that, the great empire builders, or the nations that surround Israel that tend to exhibit power and innovation, the ability to lead in the development of culture. Rather, Israel and God's people, even before the development of Israel and the calling of Abraham, tend to be the priestly people. And so that destruction of the rule of mankind I think is associated primarily with the destruction of the cultural people um, whereas it's the priestly stump as it were of Noah that is preserved and from that priestly stump we'll have a new um, development of nations with powers and civilizations empires and technological innovations and the story of Babel very strongly reminds us perhaps of the descendants of of Cain they're doing the same sorts of technological developments they're building cities um, and civilizations and empires and so there are resemblances there and I think the resemblances invite us to think about that greater work of forging power in the world and then maybe how a priestly people a remnant people um as God chooses Abraham from out from the nations, um, how that people relates to the wider work of culture building. I wonder if there's a sense in which the emphasis in Genesis 5 and elsewhere is on learning rather than on the technology. 
technology and innovations can often be a a driver in a sense and uh, an influence that causes people to do things whether they're ready to handle and wield that technology wisely or not it's there and it has to be used and and that surfaces as you say in babel as well meanwhile in genesis 5 we have these two individuals at least enoch and noah who are said to walk with the lord that's the emphasis and uh, important fact about their lives and I wonder if it's encouraging the development of a faithful walk, a faithful relationship with God and and a learning and discipling process before the technology comes and and, um, before innovations happen. Either way, I guess it's a reminder that what is remembered here and what will be remembered in our lives is the faithfulness to God rather than trying to take a hold of the environment and actively trying to shape it, but not necessarily in God's way or at God's time. That's certainly something that we see in the story of um, the building of Babel. They want to build a name for themselves and that technological development and that um, architectural endeavour is brought to nothing but yet God does call Abraham and say that he will make his name great and so there's a juxtaposition between those characters and here I think the other thing we notice through the genealogical structure it invites us to think in terms of progression each generation is moving forward and that movement forward eventually arrives at the character of Noah and the concern that's associated with Noah is not just let's gain power on the earth but how is the relationship between God and the people and the land and the people which has been judged as a result of um, man's sin how is that going to be healed Um, it's a very different concern from that which we might see at the end of the story of Lamech which is concerned with the story or the story of Lamech and his wives in the previous chapter which is concerned with vengeance with asserting his own power, with the strength of polygamous kings and rulers, perhaps, and then the development of the technologies of his sons. Um, So as you say, I think there is a contrast to be observed there. What do you think about the resemblances and maybe the juxtaposition of the two genealogies, where we see, on the one hand, characters such as um, an Enoch, within the first genealogy, and Enoch in the second. We have um, Lamech in the first and the second. We have Irad, Irad and Jared. We have Methushael and Methuselah, very similar names. Um, what should we make of those connections or similarities? The, the short answer is, is that I don't know, I suppose. <laughs> um, I guess we, we are obviously to think about them and think about them unfolding alongside one another. I don't know if it suggests that there was actually interaction between these two lineages, that they just didn't go their separate ways and populate completely different parts of the earth. I'm not sure if that's something that we're meant to read into it. Obviously, part of the difficulty of trying to interpret these names is that they're all pre-Babel, and I'm not even sure in some senses whether it's right to try and 
interpret them in, in light of a particular language. Maybe it is just the sounds of them and the similarities in, in sounds that we're meant to focus on. Some people have reflected upon the potential meanings of the terms, Richard Hess and others, um, associating them with specific roles or characteristics. But that statement that you make about the um, sounds of them, I'll be interested to hear more about that. Well, I, I guess I, I was just thinking of the um, the similar sounds that you had mentioned between, say, Jared and Irad. Um, I mean, um, pronounced in in Hebrew, they sort of sound similar towards the end um, as well. There's no uh, etymological connection. They're not from similar roots or, or anything. But um, I, I just wonder if it suggests um, an, an influence and some sort of contact between the two lines. It might also be worth thinking about the fact that the other names that we find in the chapter surrounding are often um, given some sort of um, etymological reflection or um, we think about the name of Eve or something like the connection between Adam and the earth from which he's created, or the way in which Cain is um, given some meaning um, in his birth. Other characters that we have, such as Noah. Noah, of course, has some um, etymological significance to his name. So I would take that as an invitation, in part, maybe one that we shouldn't stretch too far, to reflect upon the meanings of the other terms that are given to the characters in these chapters. Yeah, that that seems right. Yeah, I think I think you're right. We do have precedent scripturally for um, for for doing that kind of thing. I I guess maybe then the thought would be that scripture wants us to think about their meanings in light of the Hebrew language, even if that wasn't the original language of those names. It might have been the original language of those names. What? Certainly a matter that's been uh, something that's been a matter of great debate over history. Yes, yes. The character of Lamech at the end of both, or near the end of both genealogies, is very interesting. As you mentioned, in both cases, they're connected with the number seven in some way. In the story of chapter four, it's being avenged 70 times seven, which... Um, maybe makes us think about the 70 weeks of years of the exile or maybe something such as Jesus' statement to Peter about forgiving the brother that has sinned against you. Um, in the case of Lamech in the line of Seth, he lives to 777 years. So certainly those two characters seem to be juxtaposed with each other, one focusing upon vengeance and the other focusing upon the gift of rest and the forging of peace, that the conflict and enmity between God and humanity, that that might be healed by the one that's born. Whereas in the case of the earlier Lamech, the son of Cain, descendant of Cain, there's a very different emphasis. He wants to continue a legacy of vengeance and retaliation, um, taking retaliation into his own hands. And maybe there's an irony in the fact that God cuts off that line and his great act of vengeance in the flood destroys that cycle of vengeance itself while ultimately giving the rest 
that Lamech and the line of Seth look towards? Lamech, in Cain's uh, line at least, is closely associated with the um, uh, with the, um, those who dwell in tents and have livestock. That's Jabel, his his son, which seems to be a kind of unwinding of the curse or an attempt to tame the uh, environment which has become hostile in the aftermath of the curse. Likewise, Lamech in chapter 5 sees Noah is, as someone who is going to um, bring relief probably from the curse out of the ground that the Lord has cursed. This one shall bring us relief from our, our work, it's, it's said. So I wonder if there, there are even similar um, things in, in the two Lamech's minds and, and missions going on at that point. Yeah, that would be interesting to reflect upon. I'm not sure I have many thoughts on that, beyond the fact that if we think about Cain and Abel, and then in that later generation with um, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, we see a sort of bifurcation of humanity's relationship with the earth and with humanity's calling more generally, that Adam was created in part to till the earth, to be a man of the earth, but then also to exercise uh, dominion through word and uh, a rule over the animals, naming the animals, um, and also creating things with his breath, bringing breath to bear upon the earth. And in the story of Noah, it seems that we have those dimensions too. Noah is the one, perhaps more than any other, who's associated with livestock. He gathers livestock together. But then he also becomes a man of the earth after the flood and he plants a vineyard and both aspects of Adam's calling, I think, are reflected, first of all, in the bifurcated line of Cain and Abel and then later on in that further generation of Cain's line and then in Noah himself. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.